0: I think that Josh's uh, plea for patience might be uh, immediately applicable um, here. So good. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter twenty. It's good to see everybody today. There's a few of you that I don't know or haven't met yet. My name is Dave now and I'm the pastor here. And I'd love to get to meet you after the service. So please don't run away. Give me a chance to. Uh, say hi and introduce myself, Uh, that would be great. We are in Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. It's often viewed as one of those heavy, burdensome passages. I don't think it's actually that way, and we're going to sort of go through it uh, as we go along. I'm going to take it a little differently because we're looking at the whole chapter today. And uh, so we'll explain that as they go through. But let's get started. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we do need it. And we need to be reminded of what makes God so great. We need to be reminded of what makes your word so great. We need to be reminded of what makes your law so great. We need to be reminded that Exodus is a redemption story, and that Exodus points us to our Redeemer, and we need the redemption he offers. So once again, we come this morning praying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. About six years ago, uh, Newsweek magazine... Uh, published an article by Lisa Miller with the provocative title of We Are All Hindus Now. The article begins this way. America is not a Christian nation. We are, it is true, a nation founded by Christians. And according to a 2008 survey, 76% of us continue to identify as Christian. Still, that's the lowest percentage in American history. I don't think that's improved since 2008. Of course, we're not a Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or Wiccan nation either. There are a million plus Hindus who live in the United States, but that's just a fraction of the nearly a billion who live in the world. But recent polls show that conceptually at least, we are slowly becoming more like Hindus and less like Christians, and the way that we think about God, ourselves, each other, and eternity. And the article makes the point that even though the majority of Americans identify to some degree with the Christian faith, we are becoming more like the Hindus who believe there are many paths to God, just as there's many ways to climb a mountain, each religion offers its own way to God, and none is better than any other. Now, the article even quotes the familiar words of Jesus in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the article continues, these words would appear to be an utterly exclusive claim. And I would argue they don't appear that way. They are an utterly exclusive claim. But it says Americans are no longer buying it. According to a 2008 Pew Forum survey, 65% of Americans agree that many religions can lead to eternal life, including 37% of evangelicals, the group most likely to believe that salvation is theirs alone. Also, the number of people who seek spiritual truth outside of church is growing dramatically. The number of Americans who consider themselves spiritual but not religious has risen to 30% by 2008. And again, that number is only getting higher. So what does all that mean? Stephen Prothero, who's a professor of religion at Boston University, studies religion in America, has long framed this American uh, bent for the Divine Delhi cafeteria religion as very much in the spirit of Hinduism. He says you're not picking and choosing from different religions because they're all the same. It isn't about orthodoxy, it's about whatever works. So if going to yoga works, great. And if going to Catholic Mass works, great. And if going to Catholic Mass plus the yoga plus the Buddhist retreat works, that's great too. And more and more Americans, including a healthy chunk of evangelicals, take this divine cafeteria approach to faith. We pick and choose what we want to believe. I will take a serving of God's love, but I will skip that part about hell and judgment. Give me a small serving of church and a big helping of make me happy for dessert. We pick and choose what we want to believe. Which forces the question of the article, are we all Hindus now? Maybe we are, let's take a simple test and find out. How many of the 10 commandments can you name? Suppose someone offered you $20,000 to name the 10 commandments in 20 seconds. Could you do it? Believe it or not, you can go to YouTube and watch a video where the man with too much money is making that offer. If you're a Christian, you've certainly heard the Ten Commandments. And even if you're not very religious, you're probably still familiar with them. Can you name all ten? Take a moment and think about it. You don't have to call it out. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. Run through them in your mind. Can you get all ten? Most people can't. Most Christians... Can't. First time I tried it, I got them all, but it took me more than 20 seconds. I had to start thinking, you know, going through them. And uh, and then I looked down, and It was really disappointed. I was like, oh, I'm not getting $20,000. <laughs> so how'd you do? One recent survey of the church Uh, by the Reuters News Service suggests the answer may be not very good. When surveyed, most Americans did a far better job of naming the seven ingredients of a Big Mac. You know, two all-beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Eighty percent of Americans knew the all-beef patties, but only sixty percent recognized, you shall not murder. Only 45% knew, honor your father and your mother. Only 34% knew, remember the Sabbath day. And only 29% recognized, do not make for yourself an idol. Americans know our burgers, but we're pretty shaky on the Ten Commandments. And things are even worse on the other side of the pond. In the United Kingdom, only 6% of the people surveyed could name all Ten Commandments. And among those between the ages of 11 and 16, 28% couldn't name a single commandment, not even one. And the survey revealed that many people want an updated version of the commandments The majority of British people think that four of the Ten Commandments should simply be ditched in favor of more modern moral imperatives, such as protect the planet and respect all people regardless of race, religion, or sexuality. Not being motivated by greed and don't be a terrorist were also popular additions. sort of thought that might be covered on the do not murder one, but, you know, I guess don't be a terrorist is sort of good general advice. You can all write that one down. What would you learn in church today? Don't be a terrorist. Okay. But the four commandments that were judged no longer relevant by 60 to 70% of the people polled were the first four commandments. Having no other gods before me, not making any carved images or idols, not taking the Lord's name in vain, and keeping the Sabbath holy. Maybe that's why we're all becoming Hindus now, because not knowing what God has said, we feel free to revise the commandments to put them more in line with our 21st century worldview. So that thought of just how far we have moved away from sort of this standard Judeo-Christian uh, teaching. I'm doing something wrong here? You're good? Okay. But it brings us to what I think is the single most important uh, part of Exodus 20, our passage for today, and that's how it begins So turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, where we see the law's importance. The law's importance. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, we spent a lot of time going over all the stuff associated with verse 2. So I'm going to focus on uh, verse 1. And Exodus 20, verse 1 says, And God spoke all these words. So often in our attempt to get down to the good stuff, we rush right over those words as if they're some kind of ancient copyright notice. You know, we're flipping past the title page to get to the first chapter. But that's a crucial mistake to make because these words tell us who is speaking. And God spoke all these words. So who's speaking here? God is. And what did he say? All these words. And where do the Ten Commandments come from? They come from God. These are not ten suggestions for your best life now. Or ten things you should consider. Or ten habits of highly successful people. Or ten ways to climb the ladder. Or ten ideas that might work for you. Our trying God has given us his law in scripture. Specifically, the Ten Commandments are the heart of God's law. Summarized by Jesus in Matthew twenty two by the verb love. Now the great Puritan Thomas Watson, thinking about God's law, says, because it is God's law, several duties are upon us. First, God spoke all these words. God did. Therefore, they have lasting moral authority because of who said them? God Himself is the preacher, which calls for reverence and faith. We need to see the name of God written upon every commandment. It's almost you could take these phrases and say, and God spoke, and then list each commandment to remind you who's doing the speaking. Second, God spoke all these words. He spoke them so that all the people could hear them. That's never happened before. And so we don't have to wonder about his intentions here. Since he spoke them we should remember them. Surely all God speaks is worth remembering. Third, God spoke all these words therefore we must hear all of them and take all of them with utter seriousness. The words God speaks are too precious to lose. As We would have God hear all our words when we pray, so we must hear all his words when he speaks. And fourth, God spoke all these words. Therefore, we must give these words our primary attention. We must attend to these words with reverence. Every word of the law is an oracle from heaven. The moral law is a copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid and what duties to pursue. The commandments are a treasury to enrich our lives. And when we realize that, we can come to love the commandments. And finally, if God spoke all these words, they must be obeyed. If the king speaks, his words command allegiance, and much more when God speaks, His words must be obeyed. God, who spoke all the words of the moral law, will have them all obeyed. Many years ago, the late uh, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, well-known PCA pastor from 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, spoke at a rally for the Bible in downtown Los Angeles. And during his address, he summarized what Christians believed about the Bible and its authority, and he said this, God has spoken and he did not stutter. If you think about it, it's a profound and actually a radical claim. We believe that God has spoken to us in the Bible and he spoke in such a way that we can know what he said. This claim stands squarely against the whole relativistic spirit of the age with its claim that no one can really know the truth. And yet, knowing the law's importance isn't enough. You need to know what the law is about. And I'm not talking about the specific content of each law, but the overall content of the commandments, or what we might call the law's substance. The law's substance. That's the second blank there. The law's substance. Starting in verse 3 through 17, I'm going to read. This is the whole Ten Commandments. or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's a impressive list. And I'm not gonna go through each of the commandments one by one right now and say, this commandment means this, mostly because we're gonna come back and do that next summer. Not this summer, but the summer of 2017. And then we'll go through them one at a time and see how they're relevant, how they're filled with grace, and how best to apply them to our lives. What I want to do now is look at them as a package. We're used to looking at them individually, but rarely do we look at them as a single unit of thought. And I want you to see something that I don't usually notice, I don't think many people notice, and that is how all these commandments hang together. I want you for a minute to see how they are absolutely interdependent. You know, when I first became a Christian, a long time ago, one of the Bible verses that really bugged me, there was more than one, but one that really bugged me was James 2.10. Because it says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Which essentially means that if you're trying to obey God's law, but you break anyone at any point, you've broken all of God's law. If you violate the law of God at any one point, you've broken all of God's law. And that really bugged me. I mean, I felt like, look, 9 out of 10 ain't bad. I mean, if I've kept 9 out of 10 laws, I want some credit for that, right? 90%, that's an A. At least it used to be. Now I realize I got it all wrong. God wasn't saying, or James wasn't saying that God doesn't grade on a curve. What James is trying to say is you really can't break one law without breaking them all, and you really can't keep one law without keeping them all. They're much more interdependent than you thought. So let me explain, because I think there's at least three ways, probably more, but at least three ways in which the Ten Commandments are interdependent by what they combine. First of all, they combine the vertical and the horizontal. That's one you may have heard. The first table of the law, commandments 1 through 4, are about God. How do I honor God? How do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? The next table of the law, which commandments 5 through 10, is horizontal. How do I honor other people? How do I love my neighbor as myself? So there you have the horizontal, how do I love my neighbor as myself, and the vertical, how do I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it combines the horizontal and the vertical. It's not just spiritual, it's not just social, it's both. And it's not just personal and spiritual, and it's not just external and social. It's both. That's the first combination. It combines the vertical and the horizontal. The second combination covers the inner and the outer, or the inside and the outside, the internal and the external. It covers the inner, the psychological, spiritual, motivational, all the stuff that goes on inside, as well as the external, the physical and the practical. You may not have thought of this, I hadn't until recently, but I want you to start thinking about this. We actually talked about this last week, and we'll probably keep talking about it because Exodus brings it up all the time. this focus on the inner life and the outer life. The first two commandments, starting at verse 3, says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's talking about your sort of what we would call your very heart of hearts. What's going on inside the center of your life at the very core of your life? This means if there's anything more important to your hope, your meaning in life, your self-worth, your security, than the love of God, you're sinning. Pretty blunt, huh? If God's not first, if anything else is there, you're sinning. Now we've talked about this lots of times, Well, so let me give you an illustration. And I've used this before in the past, a long time ago, but... Many years ago, there was a girl in a youth group. No names or places. This has probably happened in virtually every church I know. So this girl is about 15, I think, something like that. And she's sitting in youth groups saying how discouraged she is about her whole life. And so her pastor talked to her about theology. pastor said, are you a Christian? She said, yes. I'm born again, I have faith in Christ, I have the love of God, I know I'm going to heaven. Then she said, but you know what? What good is all that if the boys don't even know I'm alive? Most of the women are smiling. Most of the guys are like, "Uh uh-oh. For some people that's cute, others it's funny. I don't think it's much of either. Why not? Because here's what she's doing. Did she not believe the gospel? Did she not believe in God and all these great things? Yes. But God's on audio. And the boys are on video. I mean, if you're listening to something on audio, at the same time you're watching something on video, which will win? What's going to get your attention? It's going to be the video not the audio. It's going to be the image, not the sound. You see, she believed in God, but the boys had captured her attention, her captured her imagination. It's imagination and image and video that wins the day. And thus, boys had captured her heart. Boys were more important to who she was and to her self-worth, which is probably true for most 15-year-old girls, not having ever been one, I can't say for sure. But you see how the Ten Commandments are now getting at the very heart of things? What captures your imagination? What's your real motivation? Why do you really get up in the morning? What's your real hope? What's your real meaning in life? What is it? Is it anything other than the love of God? And if so, how do you know? Because see, the Ten Commandments gives you a sign for how you know. How do you know if there's something more important to you than God? Lack of contentment. The summary commandment is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. But you know what that means. That's a, a command to be content. If you love God more than anything else, when you look out there at all the things you don't have, And I don't care how much you do have, there's a ton of stuff you don't have. And you might say, particularly if you live in Northern Virginia, I'd like that. But if God's first, those things won't drive you. They won't gnaw at you. The Tenth Commandment is a command to be content with what you do have. And the Tenth Commandment is a command to love God enough to be content. Everybody wants success. Everybody wants relationships. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants achievement. But if God is your ultimate comfort, your ultimate concern, your ultimate security, then when you don't have the money and you don't have the relationships and you don't have those things, they won't drive you crazy. You've made that inner transformation that God's at the center of your heart. And then you can keep the Sabbath and you can keep the commandments. Because ultimately, you're content with God. And it's not just on the inside. It's also on the outside. Same principle. Let's move to the external. Why? Because if you're content, you don't overwork. You don't commit adultery. If you're content, you won't use sex as a way of self-fulfillment and self-realization, but only as a way of building commitment and community within with another person in marriage. So if you have that inner transformation, you'll be able to do the things the commandments tell you to do. So in a way, the Ten Commandments command that you be born again, that you have a transformation, that you have a contentment, as well as all those practical things. They combine the inner and the outer. And then third, last of all, it combines individual, personal, and corporate. In our culture right now, Values are fragmented. You have a group of people over here who stress caring about the poor and justice and equality and including everybody, and that's a social morality. And when it comes to personal morality, what you do with your sexuality is your business. But over here you have a bunch of people who talk about traditional values and being religious and being moral and not committing adultery and all those sorts of things. But when it comes to concern for the poor and all that, that's not so important. But if you actually read the Ten Commandments and understand what they're saying, there is a combination here. Second Commandment, no false religion. Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. Seventh Commandment, no adultery, traditional family values. But on the other hand, Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, which actually means caring for the economic well-being of everyone. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder, which actually means not harming anyone and caring for their physical safety and their physical conditions, social justice. You're going to see when it comes to you shall not murder, it means caring about the hungry. So there's this combination here. Even the Sabbath, if you look carefully, Is an act of liberation. If you overwork and you're just becoming a cog in an economic system which is using you and exploiting you, even if you're doing it voluntarily. So when you come and look at the commandments, there's cultural analysis, there's social analysis, there's religious analysis, there's individual, personal, and social morality. It's all there. The fourth commandment, now, keep the Sabbath holy actually combines all these things together in an attempt not just to keep us holy, but to keep us sane. So let's go back for a moment to James 2.10. Do you see what it means when he says if you break one, you break them all? They're all interdependent? For example, you, know, you might say, well, look, I'm very good. I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I honor God. I'm abusive to my employees and I'm harsh and I'm nasty and unkind and I'm cruel to people, but I love God. Well, wait a minute. If you say I'm okay with the first part of the commandments, I'm honoring God, I just don't like people. Well, you're not honoring God if you don't love people. The commandments weren't given individually. They were given as a complete, interdependent, interlocking, interwoven set. You can't keep commandments 1 to 4 without keeping commandments 5 through 10. Or perhaps you might say, Yes, I lied, and, Well, yes, I stole. But at least I didn't commit idolatry. But you did. You always. Commit idolatry if you lie or steal or break any of the commandments. Because why would you lie unless you made approval or saving face or money or something like that more important than God? So you wouldn't lie, you wouldn't steal, you wouldn't do anything wrong ever if God were absolutely positively first in your life. You wouldn't need to, you wouldn't have to, there'd be no motivation to. See, they're all one piece. You can't actually keep one without keeping them all, and you can't actually break one without breaking them all. There is a substance here, an interdependence of the Ten Commandments. But what do we do with that? Because it's starting to sound a little on the impossible side. Well, I'm glad you asked, because that leads us to our third point, which is the law's principles. The law's principles... Starting at verse 18. It says, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. It said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. The parallel passage in Deuteronomy has that much bigger explanation of that, how terrified how scared the people were to hear God's voice. Again, verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it you shall not go up uh, by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I'm going to skip verses 18 to 21, mostly because I covered most of that last week and we're running out of time. So let's go to verse 22. We see God's instructions about uh, idols and idolatry here, how that reflects the first four commandments. God's people have to worship God alone. Israel will fail to obey this word in Exodus 32 when they bow down to a golden calf. And moving on in verses 24 to 26, God tells them how to worship. This reference to altars and sacrifices remind us of the patriarchs who built altars my good now all right okay so God not only wants them to worship him but he doesn't want them to worship him like of the pagans and so the point is nothing should capture our hearts and take us away from the object of worship which is a trying God which one Use this one. So there's a number of principles we have here about worshiping God, and not just worshiping God, but worshiping Him in the right way. And one of the first principles we have here is the principle of locality. These verses teach us something important about the location of worship. God says, verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And then Israel did not have to go to Mount Sinai to experience God's presence. There would be other places to meet God, later in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And now we understand through the Holy Spirit, God can be worshiped all over the world. In John 4, Jesus told the woman at the well that worship was not about a location, but it's about worshiping the living God in spirit and in truth. We don't have to make a pilgrimage to a certain place to experience God's presence in worship. We come through Christ by the Spirit to meet with God. And when we meet with uh, God in worship, we know God is with us. There's also the principle of simplicity. God tells them, make your altar out of earth and stone. Canaanites worshipped idols, but they did so on altars of finished stone. One commentator says, an altar made from such costly and aesthetically pleasing stone would be a tribute to human craftsmanship, but it would be defiled from the Lord's point of view because it distracted attention from Him and His goodness. And the whole point was the pagan altars were built a very costly, very large, very high, uh, sort of to show off. And God tells Israel, build it out of the earth. Keep it simple. He doesn't want anything to distract from worship. You know, the altar is simple, just stones fitted together in which wood would be laid for the sacrifice. And there is a sense that nothing in corporate worship today should be done to just show off. And I'm afraid that actually happens a lot in churches in America. And yet it seems clear from the scripture that God is supposed to be the focus of worship. Not the building, not the leader, not the music, not even a sermon. Thought I took that part out. Um, God delights in the praise of his people. And it doesn't matter matter if they gather in a nice building or they're exalting him in a mud hut in a faraway place. The point is nothing's supposed to capture our hearts and take us away from the worship of the one true God. Third, you have the principle of sacrifice. The most important thing about an altar is what happens on top of the altar. An altar is a place for making sacrifice for sin. Burn offering is an offering of atonement. You know, a perfect animal is placed on the altar and it's consumed with fire with the smoke rising to heaven. The second type is a fellowship offering or a peace offering. Also deals with sin, but had a different emphasis. Those offerings are given on a special occasion to give thanks to God. And they symbolize fellowship with God, peace with God. Hence, peace offering. And in recognition of God's reconciliation with us, the offering is not consumed, so they ate the animal in the presence of God. If there's sin, there needs to be a sacrifice but we don't do that anymore. I haven't killed an animal on an altar in front of you lately. (laughs) Ever. And that presents for us a big problem. So what's the law's problem and what's the solution? What's the problem, what's the solution? I didn't go through each of the Ten Commandments I didn't go through and explain what they all are. And even when you do just a summary like I did, you start to feel the weight of it. And here's the problem of the law. And here's the problem they felt. On the one hand, you hear the law of God and you say, of course, I should live like that. Romans 2 says the law is written on our hearts, no matter who we are, no matter where we are. On the other hand, you say, you know, I can't do it. I can't live like that. I can't keep them. I break them all the time. So I'm condemned. And Israel realized the law of God is something they can't live with and they can't live without. I have to obey them. I can't obey them. That's the problem. And there's three gospel truths which show us the way out of the problem. And the first one is that Jesus atoned for our failure in these commandments. The commandments of God are pure, they're true, they're beautiful, they're a perfect reflection of God's character and God's will, and we stand in stark contrast to that revelation. We are, to put it bluntly, spiritual failures who could be justly condemned for our sin. But our failure is not our end. Jesus has fully atoned for our sins through his death on the cross. And by it, we're reconciled to God, Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, not some, all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus atoned for us, for our failure. Amen. Second, Jesus fulfilled the commandments for us. Not only has God forgiven our unrighteousness, he's given us the righteousness of Jesus declaring that in Christ we're holy and blameless. In every point where we failed, Jesus has been faithful. With these very commandments, Jesus was not only righteous, but he was righteous for us. Romans 5.19, So as by the one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. And third, Jesus empowers us. To live out these commandments. Jesus empowers us. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ we're not only delivered from the curse of the law, but we're empowered by God to obey it. Yes, we still remain sinners. I mean, we have the Lord's Supper and elders always get up and speak and they, one speaks about repentant sinners and one speaks about unrepentant sinners, but they're all sinners. No non-sinners come forward. We find ourselves unable to uh, loose ourselves to get away from sin's presence this side of heaven. But God is at work in his people to enable them to walk in his ways. You really can live a godly life. A life in which you acknowledge and repent of your sin and submit yourself to the will and ways of God through the power that comes by the Holy Spirit. As Philippians 2 tells us, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even after the giving of the law, God knew his people would need forgiveness. Of course, these sacrifices all pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sin by his death on the cross. His sacrifice pleased God and now we can be reconciled to God. In fact, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.10 refers to Jesus as our altar. He was the burnt offering that made sacrifice for our sin. He was the peace offering that reconciles us to God. Therefore, when it comes to worship, the most important thing we do is remember Jesus. When you walk down for the Lord's Supper, we want to do that next week. One of the things that you're going to hear is, as you take the bread and you take the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're sort of reenacting a public profession of faith every time you come forward. On the cross, Jesus Christ was not just dying the death that we should have died. He was living the life we should have lived. Jesus Christ was fulfilling the law. He's doing what God wants us to do. When he went to the cross to die for our sins, he was loving the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength the way no one else ever has. No one else has ever loved the Lord like that. And no one else has ever loved his neighbor like that because he died for you and me. He was fulfilling the law perfectly, fulfilling the law completely, in a way no one else ever has. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the key verses for some of the songs we sang earlier, it says, For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. It means not only are all our sins put on Him, and He's given what we deserve, but His righteousness comes to us. His obedience, His fulfillment of the law comes to us. Now God treats us as if we had done everything that Jesus did. And that means two things. One, we don't have to be afraid to obey the law because we're already accepted through what Jesus has done. And second, I can obey the law out of delight. I know I'll be imperfect about it. But I don't have to feel incredibly guilty all the time because even my imperfect obedience to the law is a way to begin to love the one who did this for me. After all, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So ultimately, I think the big question of the Ten Commandments and whether we obey them or we don't obey them all boils down to this one simple question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. pray together our lord and our god thank you that you have spoken to us by your son open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our savior we see the law is impossible to live with without jesus but because jesus fulfilled the law completely and jesus obeyed the law perfectly we can have the righteousness of christ Thank you for taking away the fear of trying and failing to obey the law because we will surely try and we will surely fail. But because Jesus on the cross loved you with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved us neighbors as himself in our place, on our behalf, we now know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for that we give you great thanks. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.